turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I want to read our text for us before we begin and do a little review, and then we'll get right into verses, the end of verse 6 through 8. Um, let me read for you our text out of Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 6. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now, we've been thinking and we've been talking about this, uh, our gifts here for the last week or so, and we've been in this little series, The Transforming Power of the Gospel, and beginning in verse 12, or uh, chapter 12, verse 1, we've seen how the gospel expects us to uh, sacrifice. It's just expected. It expects us to serve, and then it basically comes down and it expects a new way of thinking. And so we've talked about a new way of thinking about ourselves. That's covered in verse 3. A new way of thinking about our fellowship with other believers within the church. That's verses 4 and 5. And now we come to a right way of thinking or thinking rightly about our gifts. And uh, last week we introduced this subject and we said that we, as far as foundational truths... To start this little series on the gifts, we have to understand that, first of all, we all have at least one gift if you're a believer here today. If you've trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you have at least one spiritual gift. We're not talking about a talent. We're not talking about a natural ability. We're talking about something God gifts you at the time of salvation. So we all have at least one gift, and probably most of us have several, even though you may not know what they all are. Uh, secondly, we said that the gift, the list here in Romans is not an exhaustive list, nor are any of the lists in the Bible exhaustive. And there's a real danger of thinking of it that way, because sometimes we can think, well, what's your gift? Oh, your gift is exhortation. Well, my gift's mercy. And then we dial into that gift and that gift alone. And so that if there's an opportunity to exhort somebody, we just kind of file away and hide in the corner and say, well, that's not my giftedness. (laughs) See, just because you're gifted in a certain way doesn't give you the excuse not to be involved in other ways. Now, that may not be the most efficient way for you to be involved, but when there's a need in the body of Christ, we can't hide behind our gift. A lot of people do that. Well, my gift's serving, so I can't, you know, I'm not going to teach or I'm not going to do this or I'm not going to do that. And, you know, I think some people think their gift is sitting. That's not a spiritual gift, by the way. And so we all have gifts. This, these lists are not exhaustive in any way. So my gift of serving may look different than your gift of serving. Or your gift of teaching may look different than my gift of teaching. Or exhortation or giving, as we look at several of these today. And then thirdly, we looked at last week in introduction to this, is that gifts are administered by the Holy Spirit. We don't get to administer our own gifts. (laughs) See, it's not like, you know, you go to a gift fair, 
you know, some churches have ministry fairs. You know, afterwards, they'll have all the tables set out in the, in the lobby there. And, and you'll go up, and they'll have the, the nursery ministry and the, the fellowship ministry, those who help in the kitchen, the, the uh, Sunday school, whatever. And it goes on and on. And you can go visit the different tables, and, and you kind of pick and choose whatever you want to do. Some people treat their spiritual gifts that way. They think somehow that they are in charge of what spiritual gifts they have. And the Bible says that is just not true. It's not true. The gifts are administered. They're given out. They're delegated. They're gifted to us by the Holy Spirit of God. Because he knows us best. We don't even know ourselves half the time. I've, I've run into people that say, well, I'm, I have this gift. And I've had opportunity to see them practice their, quote, gift. And I had to go up and tell them, say, you know what? You don't have that gift. <laughs> Hate to tell you, but you just don't know who told you you did, but you don't. I can see very clearly. And yet there's other people who are doing things, and they don't even know they have a gift. And yet they're using their gift, <laughs> and they don't even realize it. And so we all have a gift. The, the lists are not exhaustive. The gifts are administered by the Holy Spirit. Now, we, we introduced last week four things. First of all, the presence of gifts. And we talked about the church ministry being a team sport. You know, you can't have a baseball team, an effective baseball team, without a catcher or an outfielder. It's not just all about the pitcher all the time. The pitcher needs support. And so it's the same way within the church. You know, the guy that plays one inning a game in the outfield somewhere because he's maybe a great hitter and they put him in just for that. He's just as much of the team as, as the guy that's been in there every inning, the whole, the, whole, the whole game. And so that's the way the church operates or the way it should operate. And so first of all, we looked at the presence of gifts. And it says there in Romans, since we have gifts. It's not question. It's not an option. Like I said, we all have gifts. And he says that over and over in 1 Corinthians 12, 1. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, Paul writes, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be unaware. And it's the same thing within the local church here in our church. We don't want you to be unaware that you have spiritual gifts and that you should be using those gifts to serve Christ and to serve the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 gives us a list of what, the, what Christ gave the church. What God gave the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists. In Ephesians 4, 11 to 12, some pastors, some teachers. Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. It doesn't say those, those men were given for the equipping of the saints so they could just come and sit and, and hear you preach every week. That's not what it says. It says for the work of service. So there's some expectation on when you receive teaching, there's some expectation that you'll do something with that teaching. And it says to the building up of the body of Christ. That's the ultimate goal. That's what we're all about. And 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And I said last week, a lot of times when we receive a gift, it's our gift. And we get to do whatever we want with it. Well, guess what? These gifts are not yours. <laughs> They're administered, like I said, by the Holy Spirit. You don't get to keep these gifts. They're not for your, your, your own use. They're for the betterment of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians twelve seven, Paul writes, But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For the common good. 
So we're all gifted in a menagerie of ways by the Holy Spirit. And and God expects us to use those gifts for his glory, for his honor. So we have the presence of gifts. And then we looked at the practice of gifts. It says differ according to the grace given to us. Over in 1 Corinthians, again, the whole chapter 12 is given to gifts. But he says this in verses 4 and 6. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Holy Spirit. The same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries in the same Lord. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. What this means is, you know what? When you practice your gift, you may not have the same outcome that I have when I practice my gift. Even though we have the same gift. We have many gifted men in our church that are able to teach and and preach. They don't necessarily teach and preach just like me. And I don't teach and preach just like them. That would be kind of boring, I would think. And so when we practice these gifts, we should be looking to God to ask him, how do you want me to use this gift for your glory, for your honor? And so many times especially people in in ministry and pastors are given into this for some reason. You know, they go to a conference and they see how one man does everything and they come back and they got to copy everything that that one man does. I was, went to a conference early on in my ministry as a youth pastor and it was First Baptist Church of Hammond, Indiana. The pastor there was Pastor Jack Hiles and he wore these big black rim glasses, you know, and he was just a really, what you would call a hellfire and brimstone kind of pastor. I it was brand new to ministry. He was Baptist. He had a bulletproof piece of glass in front of his pulpit. That's how toxic this guy was at times. You walked in their lobby and they had a, a, a store that would give you, if you were a woman and you had pants on, you weren't allowed in the auditorium. So they would give you a dress and you would go change and then you could come into the worship service. And they had a barber on staff there that, hey, if, you know, hair over the years, sorry, you're not going in there, get a cut first. I mean, they were very strict, tie, the whole thing. And it was kind of a crazy, kind of a crazy ministry, and it, ended, it didn't end well because it was built on a lot of legalism. But the one thing I, I have to say is when I went to that, that conference early on in my ministry, I went to what they call the second man conference because I wasn't a pastor. I was just a lowly youth pastor. So, you know, I was hoarded with all these other guys in this room. And we were um, taught all this stuff about how to be a good associate pastor. And some of it was good stuff. But I remember looking at all these presenters. And you know what? They all had the same kind of glasses this guy had. They, when they talked, they talked the same way. When they, it was so scary. It was just kind of a freaky experience for me. And, you know, that's not what the Bible tells us. We don't follow men, right? We follow God. And, and so God says, you know what? He gives us grace when we, when we receive these gifts to use them in a, in a way, in a fashion that would most honor him. And so we can't just point to somebody and say, oh, you have the gift of exhortation. Well, you should be doing this. Or you have the gift of service. Well, you should need, be doing this. You can't do that. And so it takes away all the finger pointing. And as long as you're faithful to use your gift, you practice your gift in a way that honors the Lord, that's all he expects. And then the third thing we looked at was the pursuit of gifts. Because he says each of us is to exercise them accordingly or use them for the glory of God. For his honor. 
And so we, we got down to the point where we listed off 14 permanent edifying gifts in the various different lists. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4. Um, and we, we kind of put them in this kind of a category. We said service. I kind of just categorized them for you. Serving would be the gifts of service, mercy, exhortation, giving. Leadership would be leadership, administration, faith. Study, under the topic of study, would be knowledge, discernment, wisdom. Under the topic of communication would be prophecy and teaching. And then under the topic of ministry would be evangelism and pastor. And so it's, it's a tragedy of wasted opportunity when we do not know what our gifts are. Nor maybe we know what they are, but we refuse to use them. It's a real waste of opportunity. And Jesus kind of spoke to that. And this is kind of introducing us here. And, and we'll, we'll get along here in our outline pretty soon. But I just want to introduce to you the idea that, you know what? When you look at Jesus' ministry here on earth and when he spoke with his disciples. At one point in Matthew 25, he shared two parables with them. One was the parable of the virgins. In verses 1 to 13. And in, the, in that parable he focused on the readiness manifested in, in waiting for the Lord's return. Remember that, that parable of the ten virgins? And, and so it was all about, well, are they, are they ready when, when the Savior comes? Are they ready for that time? Well, the second parable in that chapter, verses 14 to 30, focuses on the talents. And we've heard the parable of the talents and um, it focuses on the readiness manifested not in, work, in waiting, but in actually working, in doing something, in serving. And so those five virgins who had oil for their lamps represented believers who possessed saving grace. The two faithful servants who invested their talents represented believers who exhibited serving grace, serving life. Um, and so together, those two parables, as you read Matthew 25, it really gives you a good balance for us as believers to understand when it comes to anticipating the Lord's return, as well as living in the preparedness of that time for service for him. Because a lot of people, they'll get so caught up with the, the return of Jesus is what happens. They sit on their hands and they do absolutely nothing, thinking the Lord's coming back. Well, the Lord's coming back. Why do anything? And so they, they, they do absolutely zero. And that's not what the Lord desires us. As a matter of fact, that was the problem in the church at Thessalonica. Paul realized that. Thessalonica fell into this undisciplined, careless living. And they decided not to do any work at all. As far as ministry goes. Because they thought, well, maybe the Lord's coming back. Maybe he's coming back now, so why, why would just not do anything? And consequently, they became busybodies. They didn't do anything productive. They even disrupted the church of Christ. And Paul had to rebuke them in 2 Thessalonians. And he commanded them to work in quiet fashion to eat their own bread. And then he says in chapter 3 of 2 Thessalonians, verses 10 to 13, he says, not to grow weary in doing good. You know, I, I'm so thankful to be in a church where there's a lot of people that are doing good. 
They know what their gifts are. They're using their gifts, not just on a Sunday, but every day of the week. I mean, there's people that come down here to the church throughout the week. It's like, what are you doing here? Oh, I have to do this. I've got to get this ready. I've got to do that. I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> I mean, these are people that have families. They have kids. They have jobs. They have other things. But you know what? They're willing to serve because God has gifted them. They understand that and they want to be a good steward of what God has given. They're not growing weary in doing good. But you know what? It's easy to grow weary in doing good, isn't it? Especially the day and age we live in today. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's discouraging. Sometimes, you know, it's funny because God kind of uses those times as a way of humbleness, of humility. I mean, sometimes, you know, I'm so excited when it comes to Wednesday because we were going through First John and I'm studying this stuff. And I'm like, wow, this is going to be great. And I'm waiting at 7 o'clock and there's one person there, my wife. And I'm going, oh, man, this is not looking good, you know. And it kind of trickles in. It fills up. And, you know, we say we start at 7, but we usually give people about 15 minutes to fellowship. So usually by quarter after 7, there's a, there's a good group of people there. But I'm thinking, wow, think of all the people that aren't here and all this, what they're missing. And it's not about my teaching, but it's about going into the word of God and seeing what God's truth has for us. See, we're all busy. We all have things going on. But it comes down to, you know what? Don't ever grow weary in doing what is right, doing good. And so when you look at those parable of the talents, you know, you have um, in, in Matthew chapter 25, it says the five and the two talent guys, they went and they traded them. And that really pictures a continuing involvement in a number of different business adventures, whatever it might be, continuous ministry throughout all of life. They were busy. They were doing what the Lord wanted them to do. But then in verse 18 of Matthew 25, it says, but he who received the one talent went away. And what did he do with it? Do you remember what he did? He buried it. He dug a hole and he buried it. And he hid his master's money. And that really pictures for us people within the church who don't use their gifts. They don't use their spiritual gifts. They basically just sit there and soak it all in. Sometimes they jump from church to church to see who's got the biggest buzz going on or the newest fad or whatever. One commentator called them spiritual leeches. <laughs> I thought, wow. They're just basically in it for themselves. You know, if you got a good sermon, well, I'll be there next week. But if you're a little off this week, I'm not coming back because I'm all about, you know, or the music or whatever it might be. And see, it's so important to understand the priorities when it comes to the purpose we gather together and why we come. Now, there's nothing wrong with being, you know, sensitive to those things. You know, we all want, hopefully, music that honors the Lord and a message that exalts his son and, and gets us into the word. We all want those kind of things. But that, the, the picture of the talents, I encourage you to read that this next week and see where you would lie. Because Jesus' response to that guy that buried it wasn't like, hey, good job, at least he gave me back. He says this, you wicked, lazy slave. <laughs> wow. And he says, therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. Throw out the worthless slave into the utter darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> Obviously, Jesus' judgment indicates the one who buried his talent most likely wasn't 
a believer in the first place. So it's important that that illustration is out there for us. I read this this past week. It says, for all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these. It might have been. Think about if you understand what your spiritual gift is and you're willing to use it for his glory. Think about what could come of that. You know, I see that happen all the time in people's lives. You know, I see that happen firsthand in in the life of my son-in-law, Will, and Crystal. You know, when they really came to know the Lord and they really got committed in a church. I mean, they're all about serving and, you know, just, it's incredible. I mean, they, they really put us to shame in, in a lot of different ways as far as Ambika and I. And I'm thinking, wow. I mean, we go over there on vacation and, you know, my daughter said, well, I hope you don't mind. We're having, you know, a couple families over for dinner. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it's good. It's good because they're ministering and it's, it's just a wonderful opportunity and that's where their hearts are. Well, we come to this section of Romans where he begins to list off some of these gifts. And as I said, we mentioned that there were 14 gifts that that are for the church today. There are 18 gifts mentioned in Scripture. And we want to give a little understanding of why, as a church, we believe this. Uh, We call it cessationism. In other words, there were certain gifts that were around when the church began that are no longer operative in the church today. And this is a very divisive thing, and it's not meant, I'm not teaching it to be divisive. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to share with you uh, the truth as we see it from the Word of God. And so we see 14 gifts that are permanent, edifying for the whole church. And then there's four gifts that you would call the, the miracle gifts or, or the sign gifts. A lot of people believe they're, they're to be called. And that would be uh, the gift of languages or tongues. The interpretation of languages or tongues, miracles, the gift of miracles, and the gift of healing. Now, we're not saying that God cannot heal today. That's not what we're saying. God can surely heal. That's why we pray. Pray for my wife that she's healed. I, you know, I want her to be healed. I want her to be well. And we've prayed for many of you to be healed. But the gift of healing was a different gift. It was a gift that they possessed the opportunity, the, the ability to physically go heal people they would go out into the crowd and you know they'd see a guy limping and they would say be healed rise up and walk and the person would rise up and walk he wouldn't limp he would walk fully healed or if someone was blind when they were healed they were healed completely see and we see a lot of this quote healing going on today and it was gifted to individuals so, you know, when people, that's why so many people flocked after Jesus, right? Because he, he healed people. They knew he had this gift from God to heal people. And then subsequently, they flocked after the apostles because they still possessed that gift on occasion. And so there was gifts of languages. There was gifts of miracles, certain things that were done in the New Testament. And you've got to remember, there was never a church before this time. Okay? This was a time where you had... The very foundation of the church was being laid. You have to understand that, you know what, it was Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. That had never happened before. 
And so what would happen is over here, some Jews would get saved and, and, and they would receive the spirit and, and, and maybe the, God would give them the ability to, to speak to, to somebody else in a language they didn't even know, the gift of languages, the gift of tongues. But then over here, miles away, some Gentiles would get saved and they would receive the same Holy Spirit. But because there was this divisive wall between those two groups of people, Jews and Gentiles, like oil and water, they just don't, they don't mix. These Jews would say, well, they can't be saved. They would have to become Jews first in order to get saved. I mean, we're, you know, that's how they thought. But God, in his miraculous way, gifted them with the same ability that these guys had over here. And when these guys saw that, they said, wow, they have the same Holy Spirit we do. And that's when Peter and Paul were able to call them together and say, look, there's, there's not Jew nor Gentile. There's not male nor female. We're all one in the body of Christ. And God used a lot of these miraculous giftings to do just that, to verify who was part of the apostles and, and the church at that time. So we see here this morning, we, we see here this morning that we want to look at these gifts that are listed in Romans, but I also want to give you a, a case for cessationism. And this isn't in-depth. We're not doing a whole series on this. This is just some things that I've observed, and hopefully it makes sense. Um, cessationists believe that the sign and wonder gifts ceased with the completion of the New Testament. When the New Testament was completed, um, these sign and wonder gifts went away. And there's some indication in Scripture that that's exactly what Paul said. Where there will be tongues, that will cease. That's what's going to happen. The question is, well, when? <laughs> and when you look at Scripture, it's, it's kind of interesting because you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And a lot of people who want to talk about these sign gifts immediately go to 1 Corinthians. And they say, well, see, here's where these gifts lie and here's what they're all about. The problem is the church at Corinth was a mess. It was a mess. A real problem. It wasn't a spiritual church. Paul had to rebuke them several times. They were taking advantage of, of their giftedness. They were taking advantage of following certain leaders. They were taking advantage of the whole idea of the Lord's table when they came together for communion. It got so bad that there was actual promiscuity going on around and doing that whole Lord's table time, the celebration. They turned it into kind of this love feast and they got drunk and horrible things were happening. And so we got to be careful that when we point to all these gifts in the, in the church of Corinth, they, do, they were there and they were legitimate gifts. Nobody's questioning that. So you have in the list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which, by the way, was written around 55 A.D. It was penned. It was authored around 55 A.D. And it mentions these sign gifts. It mentions miracles and healings and tongues and the interpretation of tongues or languages. And just so you know, when I say tongues, languages, the word is languages. Okay, the, the King James kind of did a misjustice in calling it tongues because, you know, it sounds like something that nobody understands. No, it's, it's a known language. That's what the word means. And so when you, when you hear someone who say they have the gift of tongues and all they're doing is babbling and, and, and they're not making any sense, that's not a language. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. But all these were in this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. 
in their list, these signed gifts, and that was written in 55 AD. Well, what's interesting is Romans was written a year or two later. Penn wrote, Paul wrote the, the, the book of Romans under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Some, most commentators say around 56 AD is when Romans was penned. Well, guess what? There's no mention of any signed gifts here in the book of Romans in the list. Not only that, but Ephesians, another book that Paul penned, was written around 60 AD. So four years later, guess what? There's no mention of any of the signed gifts in Ephesians. There's not even any mention of the signed gifts in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. You think if there was going to be a, a mention of any of these signed gifts, if, if the signing gift and wonders were all as critical to the church today as some would make you think, that they would have mentioned them to the pastors that they're writing to when Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus. Well, guess what? There's nothing in there. In fact, there were 10 epistles written after 1 Corinthians. 10 letters that Paul and others penned after 1 Corinthians was penned. And not one of them has any mention of these sign gifts, these four sign gifts. And you say, well, why were these gifts mentioned at all? Well, turn over to Hebrews because it tells us. Hebrews chapter 2 and look at verse 3 and 4. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 and 4. We'll start in verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much close, closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Look at what it says in verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first, look at what he says, by the Lord... And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness, how did he do it? By signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. These were the sign gifts. These were the miraculous gifts. And they were indicators. They were given by God to indicate that God was speaking through these men who had to lay this foundation for something that never had been there before, the church. And so in order to testify to their authenticity, God said, you know what? I'm going to divinely gift them with some things that would just blow people's minds. Just like he did with Christ. When Christ went around, Christ possessed certain abilities that nobody else possessed. Why did he do that? To authenticate who he was. But after the written word was established, after we got the Bible established and it was, became standard, after the canon was closed, the apostles didn't go around speaking in tongues and doing miracles. It says that they preached the word. This is what Paul tells young Timothy, a pastor. He doesn't tell Timothy, hey, go out there and, and make sure you're speaking in tongues and, and make sure you're healing people and make sure you're doing this and make sure you're doing that. He doesn't tell him that. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, here's what Paul's message was to a very young pastor at the time. He says, I solemnly charge you. Sounds kind of serious, right? I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, 
Why, Paul? What are you going to tell him? Preach the word. That's what he says. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. That was their instruction. That was their call. They didn't set up a tent and have a revival healing meeting with a bunch of people babbling on in different chaotic nonsense. That's not what Paul instructed them to do. Why? Because they weren't needed. They didn't need to do that anymore. The foundation was established. They didn't need to continue to speak in languages they didn't know. Why? Paul gives an explanation in 1 Corinthians 14. He actually lowers the role of languages or tongues and holds up a gift named prophecy, which we're going to look at in a few moments, as the one gift to seek. Paul says, if you're going to, do, if you're going to seek any gift, seek this one. He says in verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks for men or to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. What is Paul saying? Look, don't worry about speaking in other languages you don't know. That's not that important. We got that established. What's important is that you speak the word of God. That you speak the word of God with power, by the power of the Holy Spirit into people's lives. You preach, preach the word. That's what the apostles did in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. The early church, it says, was built on what? On the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now think about this. If tongues was the foundation of the church, why would Paul say, you know what? That's, that foundation one day is going to go away. Because that's what he says in 1 Corinthians. Tongues will cease. That doesn't make any sense. How can it be a foundational issue if it's not going to be there one day? But what's not going to cease? The word of God. The exhortation, the teaching, the preaching of the word of God. Scripture continued to be the standard for the church. For the early church fathers. They made no mention of sign gifts. If you look at their writings. It wasn't until 1901, going to a little history here, at Bethel Bible College in Topeka, Kansas. It was Charles Parham. He was a Methodist. And he was part of the holiness movement. And they began to teach sinless perfection. In other words, you can become a Christian, and once you become a Christian, you can be perfect. You never sin again. That's not what Scripture teaches, but that's what he taught. And he said, the reason that you'll know that you have this sinless perfection is because, you know what, you have to ask God for a second blessing. And the reason you know you have the second blessing is because you'll speak in tongues. That's what he taught his people. He claimed he laid his hands on a 30-year-old student named Agnes Osman. And he claims that this student began speaking Chinese right there in the church service. And so others started repeating this language. They were interviewed by the Topeka Daily Capital. The reporter said this, I believe the whole of them are crazy. Because he went and he observed what was going on. 
But this guy, Parham, was convinced. He was so convinced that he sent these students who were speaking in this, quote, Chinese language off to China. And he sent them off to India, believing that they could supernaturally evangelize without learning any languages because they spoke in this gift of tongues. Well, history tells you what happened. It was a miserable failure because no one could understand what they were saying. It was just gibberish. It didn't make any sense. And I would charge you that even today when people speak in, quote, tongues, as the charismatic movement says it, I believe it's a real experience. I believe they're really experiencing something. I just don't believe it's the gift of languages. So you have to question, where is it coming from? could be psychosomatic. There's ministries that teach people how to do this. Just relax your tongue. Start to talk like a little baby. Just keep on saying it over and over. And then God will give you the gift of tongues. That's what they tell their people. And people do it. It could be demonic. It could be so many different things. But I guarantee you one thing. It's not the gift of languages that we find in the New Testament. I had someone, brother and Lord, come up to her. Oh, you know, I, I have the gift of tongues. You know, how could you have, say this thing? I said, well, what, what language do you speak? Oh, it's the heavenly language. What do you mean? It's the gift. It's the language. You know, Paul talks about the language of angels. Oh, yeah, he does, by the way. He's kind of using hyperbole there. But so you're saying you speak in angel speak? Is that what you're saying? Because what Bible verse would you point me to that shows me that when angels spoke, They spoke in some angelic language and not in the language of the people they were talking to. Because wherever angels spoke, they were understood, clearly. They didn't have to say, wait, what? what, This guy's babbling something. Oh, it's an angel. Oh, we don't. Is anybody here uh, speak angelese? You know, can we have an interpreter? No. Because the angels spoke in their language. So there's no such thing. And, and what Paul was saying, it got so crazy in the Corinthian church. They were just, it was just mayhem. And he probably said what this reporter said. I believe the whole of them are crazy. Because they had craziness going on within their church services. That's why Paul said, look, if you have the legitimate gift of languages, it's one, two, maybe three at the most that would be able to speak in a service. And only if there's someone there that can interpret this language. See, that gift of languages was given to the apostles because... When Jesus was so popular, everybody was hoarding, coming to Jerusalem. And when they were there, they went out and they they were going to preach the word of God. The problem was, is that you had people from all these different places that spoke all these different dialects. So you know what? God says, don't worry about it. I got this. Just get up there and start preaching. And what would happen? They'd get up and start preaching. And they started preaching. And, you know, it'd be like if I got up here and started speaking German. I mean, I like gummy bears, but I don't know German. Okay, that's about as far as my German goes. I remember I, I took French in high school, and I always remember the German club, the people that took German, they had those uh, gummy bears. They did them as fundraisers, and oh, I just love God. I'm like, why did I take German? You know, it's like, or I mean, why did I take French? I could have taken German and had gummy bears every day. But, <clears throat> but it would be like if I just started speaking German to you, and you don't know what I'm saying because you don't speak German. But you know what? Maybe there's somebody here from Germany that they don't speak English and they need to hear the gospel. 
And you know what? After I get done preaching in German, someone else stands up and says, you know what? I need to interpret what he said because most of you don't know. So God gave me the gift of interpretation. So I'm going to tell you what the pastor just said in German, but I'm going to tell you in English so you can understand. But the person in German, from Germany, was here and he heard it in his own language. Do you think that maybe the words that he heard, knowing that I don't speak German, that might get his attention? I do. And that's what the book of Acts says. It says, man, people were just befuddled by that. How do these men speak this way? It was something that God gifted them for that time period. Now, that's just that one gift. Okay, and there's, there's four of them there that we listed. And like I said, this is an expose on the whole thing. But it's important that you understand at least some of this foundation. You have to understand that there was two changes at the end of the New Testament period. When the New Testament was completed, you had the Old Testament, you had the New Testament. There were, there were two drastic changes that happened. First of all, it was the end of a unique apostolic error. In other words, there's, there's no... There's no specific apostles today. Now, that word apostle simply means sent one. So, in a general sense, we're all apostles, right? But none of us can claim the office of apostle because what that had, you had to see the risen Christ, you had to see Christ, you had to, you know, there were certain qualifications to call yourself an apostle. You couldn't just go out and say, oh, I'm an apostle, I never met Jesus, but I'm an apostle. No, they were instructed that you had to see the, be there when Christ was risen from the dead. That was part of, of the deal. And God gifted them uniquely for that time period in church. And so after that foundation was laid, well, you know what? And Christ was no longer here physically. You couldn't be an apostle even if you wanted to be in the strictest sense because Christ wasn't here physically. You couldn't see him. You couldn't interact with him. Secondly, so it came to an end, that end of that unique apostolic error. The second thing that happened at the end of the New Testament period, when the Bible was completed, it completed... The revelation of the canon. And this is very important to understand. In other words, when God gave the ability for these men to canonize scripture, they prayed and they, they sought out the Lord and he said, here, here are the books of the Bible, put these together. When that was completed and they put their stamp of approval on it, we have the Bible today. This is what we have. By the way, if you want to know more about how we got our Bible and think, uh, Dave Bullen has he got a couple new Bibles back there actually he put on the back table this past week. And they're facsimiles of original manuscripts of the Bible. And that's literally what they looked like. They were big. I mean, can you imagine? Look at some of those Bibles. They're like huge. Can you carry that around? I mean, it was crazy. And they're all done by hand type print all by hand and wood carved and really crazy. But if you're interested in how we got the canon and all that, we're not going to get into that this morning, but talk to Dave. He'll share a lot of information with you. But when that was completed, you know what? The revelation of God in that sense ceased. God said, okay, I I basically said what I'm going to say. This is it. And if you doubt what I'm saying, look at Hebrews chapter one, verse one. Here's what The writer of Hebrews says, he says, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, what are the last days? Any time from Christ to now. That's the last days. But in these last days, he has spoken, past tense, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom, we all, through whom he also created the world. 
And so the idea that God continues to speak new revelation today, you know, he gives little whispers in your ear, and you come to church and say, well, God told me this. Well, what do you mean by that? We have to be careful with the words we used. You know, do you mean that, well, you know, I was reading the scripture and I found this verse and, and, and God showed me, hey, this, this applies to me. There's nothing wrong with that. The Holy Spirit does that all the time. But the idea that you would receive direct revelation from God outside of the confines of scripture, that's a major red flag. And that's the problem with a lot of false teachers. The biggest weapon of a false teacher is, thus saith the Lord. What do you mean? You know, I was shaving this morning, and God told me this new truth. We're just going to add the book of Stephanus here at the end. Just kind of paste it on the end of the Bible there. Because this is God's word, just as much as this is. That's what they do. And so you can't call them out on it, because they're claiming they had divine revelation from God. And even when you point out a verse that contradicts maybe what they say, they'll say, well, you know, that's subject to interpretation, or whatever, they, they, they make all kinds of excuses. So we truly believe that some of these gifts ceased. But you know what? The good news is, is not all of them did. God still has gifts. He still gifts people within his church for his glory, for his honor. And so let's look at just the first one today because we kind of spent a lot of time on the introduction there. But those gifted to expound the word of God. And I want to break down these, these gifts in verses 6 to 8 as those who expound the word of God and those who expand the word of God. There's gifts that expound the word of God and there's gifts that expand the word of God. Well, Paul says here at the end of verse 6 that if prophecy in proportion to our faith So the first gift here that Paul mentions is the gift of prophecy, which deals with the inspiration of truth. Um, This word in the original language means the public proclamation of divine truth, both revelatory and non-revelatory. Okay? Revelatory and non-revelatory. Now today, as we said, God is not in the business of revealing new things, so that aspect of the gift would not be exercised today. You know, God's not going to whisper in my ear, hey, next Thursday, it's going to be, you know, they're going to have a snowstorm, so you might want to get the chains ready. You know, that doesn't happen, okay? God is completed. He's given us his word, incomplete. But there is the aspect of preaching, the aspect of proclaiming the word of God. Now, in the Old Testament, these prophets would do this directly by God's interaction with them. That's how we got a lot of the Old Testament. God would interact with them. They'd write it down and, hey, you know, do this. And that's what they would do. And we have a lot of that recorded for us. And so they were what you would call inspired teachers, church prophets, you might say. Um, they foretold certain events. Uh, they had the, the superhuman ability to understand those kind of things. And they were given that gift by the Holy Spirit, by the way. But today, prophecy, the spiritual gift of prophecy, still exists. Some commentators say, well, we don't even think it exists today because it it just deals with telling the the future, you know, something uh, revelatory. But that's not true. Um, The gift of, of prophecy basically does not pertain to the context, but rather to the means of proclamation. Okay, it was a a revelatory gift in the Old Testament, 
But in the New Testament, it was used in a different way. In 1 Corinthians 12.10, it's linked with all the other sign gifts. Remember, I said 1 Corinthians 12 is the one book that has the sign gifts in it. Well, it's, it's, it's thrown in there with a lot of them. And so there is an aspect to that. But you, you have to understand that it, it also basically means literally speaking forth the word of God. Speaking forth the word of God. As it's written for us in Scripture. It's an act of enablement to proclaim God's word already written in Scripture. That would be a good definition of it. Um, it doesn't have any connotation of prediction or supernatural, you know, mystical significance. Having the gift of prophecy literally means that you have the gift of preaching or the gift of proclaiming the word of God so that people may hear and understand it. Um, Paul gives the best definition of this prophetic gift in 1 Corinthians 4.3. He says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification, exhortation, and consolation. If you have the gift of prophecy, that's what you're doing. You're speaking for God to men. Uh, In 1 Peter 4.11, Peter admonishes also the application of this gift. He says, whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterances of God. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Some people talk to me after the, the services, the sermon sometimes, message, and they say, you know, you just read a lot of scripture. I was like, well, you know what? I mean, would you rather hear God's word or my word? You know, I mean, I, my word's empty. Okay, so it's important to integrate a lot of scripture into any sermon. So the gift of prophecy is a gift of being God's public spokesman, you might say, primarily to God's own people. To instruct, to admonish, to warn, to rebuke, to correct, challenge, comfort, encourage, all those things. But God also uses prophets to reach unbelievers as well. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 24 and 25, if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. Why? Because they're, they're foretelling the word of God. And so he will fall on his face and worship God, declaring that God is certainly among you. And he's giving that in kind of opposition to if, he, if, if an unbeliever walked into a congregation and everybody was speaking gibberish. That wouldn't make any sense. They, they'd think you're nuts and run out. But if you're prophesying, if you're speaking the word of God, God can use that to convict their hearts. And so it's very important that that's how it's even depicted in the history of the church. In the 16th century in Switzerland, pastors in Zurich came together every week for what they called prophesying meetings. You say, wow, that sounds kind of spooky. No, it wasn't. It was just basically a Bible study. They shared exegetical, expositional, and practical insights that they had gleaned from the scriptures as they studied. And they wanted to be more effective as pastors and as ministers to their people. The book of Acts speaks of many prophets besides the apostles. One being Agabus, part of the group of prophets from Jerusalem. He actually had both the gift of proclaiming the word of God and and foretelling certain things because he predicted a famine that would plague Judea during the reign reign of uh, Emperor Claudius in Acts chapter 11. And later he foretold Paul's arrest 
and his imprisonment in Acts 21. But you had Judas and Silas, on the other hand, they were also prophets themselves, but they gave no prediction, no new revelation or whatever. So that gift, sometimes in the New Testament, would have that revelatory kind of aspect to it. But like I said, after the canon was closed, that kind of faded away. Well, whatever the, the gifting, it says here in Romans, Paul says, if you have the gift of prophecy, he says, in proportion to our faith. Let him, let him use it in proportion to our faith. There's a definite article there. Faith may refer to the faith, the gospel message. In that case, according to the proportion of, our, of his faith, would relate objectively to that prophet's being careful to preach in accordance with the gospel that's already been revealed. As Jude says in Jude 3, the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. But it could also relate subjectively to the believer's personal understanding and insight concerning the gospel. To speak and according to that individual proportion of of faith that God has sovereignly assigned to him in operation of his gift. Whether it relates to revelation, prediction, declaration, instruction, whatever it is, encouragement. Prophecy is always to proclaim the word of God. It's always to proclaim the word of God. And that's a very important aspect of this. And so Paul charges Timothy and he, he applies to all proclaimers or preachers of the word of God. In 2 Timothy 4, 2, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Next week, we're going to get into the gift of service. Okay, so the first one is prophecy. And next week, we'll get through several of them because we won't have to do so much groundwork as we did this week. But I trust that... This coming week, maybe you'll read through Matthew 25 about the, the uh, parable of the talents and the ten virgins and, and see where you lie as far as using your giftedness for the glory of God. Let's close in a word of prayer and then uh, just remind you we have uh, fellowship time over across the way. We have a meal, uh, some food, things like that. It's good to meet each other over there. You're welcome to do that. You just go out the doors right across the way. And then uh, also the uh, Sunday school workers After a little bit, we'll have a meeting over here in the auditorium. We also are meeting at Brookdale today um, to the the, uh, senior assisted living over there. We have a service at 1.15. And if you're interested in joining us, uh, you can talk to myself or Terry Lamar. And we'll be heading over there uh, shortly after church this morning. It's just about a half-hour service, but sometimes it's good to go and encourage these dear folks. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have gathered us here this morning to receive it. And Lord, I pray that we'd be able to apply it to our lives as we leave and go out back out into this uh, uh, lost and dying world filled with sin. Lord, we thank you that you've gifted us with the Holy Spirit in various ways. And Lord, that you allow us to be the salt and the light of this world. And Father, we pray that you would uh, enable us to have an effect, a good effect on those around us, even today. Lord, whether it's at a store or in our home, Father, that we would be able to uh, transfer and, and translate what we've heard here this morning into practical application for your glory. Lord, we pray for anybody here this morning who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. 
Lord, we know that there's no other way to be saved other than the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And so, Lord, we, we, we come to you and we pray that you would do that work in their hearts, that you would show them that they are guilty of their sin before God. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. Everybody in this room has sinned. We've fallen short of God's glory. And it's only when we cry out to him for forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross is when we can be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to do that work of drawing men and women and children to yourself through the power of your word and through the power of your spirit. We thank you, and Lord, we pray today that you would just help us to be a blessing to each other as we fellowship together afterwards. In Jesus' precious name, amen.